If you've caught a bit of a parliamentary debate on the nightly news, chances are you've heard somebody refer to Mr. Speaker. If you, like many others, are wondering what is the role of the Speaker, this may be the podcast for you. Welcome to Politics from the Moon. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics from the Moon. I'm Ross Evans, and this is the podcast that tries to bring politics down to earth. On this week's episode, I'm joined by former cabinet minister for various portfolios, former constituency member of parliament for various constituencies in New Zealand, and currently a list member of parliament, and the 30th and current speaker of the House of Representatives in New Zealand, the New Zealand Parliament, the Right Honourable Trevor Mallard MP. Trevor, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, Ross. Well, for our listeners uh, across New Zealand and the wider world, I was just wondering if you can start by telling us a little bit about what it means to you to be a, a List Member of Parliament and indeed a Speaker of the House. Sure. Well, I, I, for most of my career, I was an electorate uh, Member of Parliament, and, and first of all, in Hamilton, and then in a uh, uh, in a Wellington regional seat, a, uh, an urban an urban seat in Wellington. But um, since um, 2017, uh, I've been a, a list member. Slightly accidental um, in that um, I, I uh, didn't have high expectations uh, of uh, being re-elected and, and, in fact, had spent nine years in opposition. And at the time our list was being developed, um, the Labour Party wasn't doing very well and I didn't want to be in opposition again. So uh, in New Zealand, uh, you can go on the list, go relatively low on the list. You can get into Parliament if there's a uh, if you have a good result, but otherwise you can quietly retire and not cause a by-election. You know, sort of in New Zealand, it's not the sort of like the done thing to say I've had enough. Uh, we'll have a by-election now. It costs a lot of money and people don't like it. So I was on my way out uh, when the current Prime Minister uh, became leader. Uh, Labour Party went up in the polls. I I was elected. There was a slightly unusual government put together uh, for MMP with. Um, uh, with the largest party not part of it, uh, and and because I had been assistant speaker in the past, I've been around for quite a long time, uh, knew the rules pretty well. I um, uh, I was the uh, the logical um, you know the logical fit for speaker. Some people say they prefer not to have me in the cabinet, and therefore it was better to better to uh, sort of have, have this sort of role. Um, being a being a list member has, um, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of a lot of exciting things to do. It means that you've got more ability to uh, follow issues because um, you're not as tied to the electorate. You can pick and choose about the local things a lot more than a local member of parliament can, you know, the things that you attend and the things that you uh, don't attend. So the time is a bit more flexible, not tied up uh, by constituent obligations in quite the same way uh, as, um, as a constituency uh, member of parliament is. Uh, and uh, and you know you can, you can make a make a different uh, and more flexible contribution, and I think it's fair to say there's a you know, there's a range there's a range of them. Um, but since I've become speaker, it's almost like the opposite has has happened, uh, and that is that there's a um, there's a real structure around the work week, um, you know, much more obligation to be at parliament than any other member. 
Um, you know, I think of my career as a as an MP, which stretches back to 1984. I can only remember three occasions when a sitting speaker wasn't present for the um, for a session of the parliament for a uh, for a question time at the beginning of the day. So it's, it's a, you know it's got to be a really big thing. Uh, not to be there, so 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 you so you are there. Obligations to be there, and and, and I think also um, a an obligation to try and make the place work better. And some of that is sort of like, um, you know in the landlord capacity because I'm you know I'm the the landlord and and I employ the employers in the in the building, the office of the clerk and the uh, uh, and the parliamentary service. So. Um, trying to make the place a, a better place to work, more efficient, more family-friendly, safe. Um, then there's interpretations in the house. There's, there's you know, how there's speaker buildings, again, trying to make it uh, more effective, trying to, you know, on occasions hold the government to account uh, a bit more uh, than, they, uh, than they currently um, are or traditionally have been. Um, and, and then in the, in the longer term, um, uh, being involved in the review and the development of the standing orders. You know, New Zealand has a, has a unique system where we, every three years before an election, um, review, have public submissions, have a committee report, which um, is at least bipartisan. The two major parties always, uh, always agree to it. Um, and and then that is you know all those changes are automatically incorporated um, in the standing orders for the next parliament. So the the lovely thing about it is you don't know who's going to be in government. So uh, the rules have got to be fair to both sides. So you want to keep in, you know you, you want to keep on increasing efficiency, but also improving accountability. So that the stuff in there both for the um, uh, both for the government. Um, and and for the opposition and 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 uh, I mean one of the one of the nice byproducts of COVID there's not much was that we did a lot of experimenting around how a parliament can work um, using different technology uh, at a distance uh, involving more involving more people and submissions and hearings and might otherwise be the case. Um, you know, getting it closer to the people. And the good thing was we had a whole lot of temporary rules that we brought in for COVID, but they were by and large incorporated into our permanent rules um, and are now part of our standing orders from the, from the last election. So some of that, you know, it's quite, it's quite rewarding you know, to see positive change occurring. Mm. And you mentioned there that uh, there are certain things that are unique about the New Zealand Parliament. I mean, uh, the thing I was explaining on the previous episode was about the the Westminster system. Uh, whilst the New Zealand Parliament uh, adheres to the Westminster system, it uh, only has one chamber. It's not bicameral. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that came around? Sure. Um, we, we used to be bicameral uh, up until the beginning of the 1950s, um, but what what was occurring was pretty transparent, and that was each government would just appoint enough of its mates uh, to control the upper house, which then was very much a rubber stamp uh, for the um, you know for the government of the day. Uh, and it, and it was really everyone agreed in the end it was a pretty pointless uh, exercise, uh, and um, uh, and 
as a result of that, there wasn't too much fuss uh, when it was abolished. Um, when that happened, there was some scrutiny function that was lost, and um, that wasn't really picked up until the 1980s when um, under Sir Geoffrey Palmer, who was the Deputy Prime Minister and then for a short time the Prime Minister, um, a, a new set of accountability, uh, which... Um, which meant that bills in New Zealand, uh, with very, very rare exceptions, um, go to select committees. So they generally go there for six months. Um, there are always public submissions on them, the ability for people to do um, you know, written, uh, these days, video if they want to, Zoom, um, or, or or physical with a physical presence uh, submissions uh, on legislation. So um, there's a degree of delay and accountability that isn't always there with other parliaments. Um, and, and I think that that is you know that's something that has generally worked well. Um, it, it does depend on the you know the quality of the select committee, the membership, uh, and the uh, and the chairing of it to make sure that things are things are listened to. But part of the Part of it is just trying to get the balance between the executive and the legislature. Now, you, you spoke a little bit previously about your uh, previous roles as a constituent member of parliament. Could you just tell us a little bit about your, your journey into politics? I mean, was it something you always wanted to do when you were younger or did you fall into it? Uh, how, how, what was your route into it? Well, my, my, my route into the Labour Party uh, dates back to 1972 uh, when I was... Um, a student uh, got sort of dragged along by my girlfriend um, to um, go to a political rally, a pre-election rally, uh, addressed by Norman Kirk, who was then the leader of the opposition at that election, became the prime minister. And I was really impressed. You know, he was a he was a good orator, and he pulled at my heartstrings and, and essentially said, "If you know, here's a list of ten, and if you believe in five or six, you should uh, vote for us, and you believe in eight or nine of these things, well, you should do some work for the Labour Party to make sure we're elected." And, and you know, and I was in the eight or nine group, joined the Labour Party, helped David Sheen, who was a candidate at the time, who uh, very unusual situation. He uh, um, he won the seat on election night but lost it on the special votes. So he was part of the caucus that elected the cabinet. That's the way that we do it uh, in, in the Labour Party in New Zealand. We have an elected cabinet uh, out of the, uh, uh, with, within the Labour Party, uh, but then but there wasn't a member of parliament uh, during that time. So I joined the Labour Party then. Um, I was unevenly active, 75, pretty active, not as active in, um, in the... Um, in in 1981, but then uh, when the Labour Party had a surprise loss, became quite a lot more active. Um, and uh, in I was living in the Central North Island at the time, and and, uh, and was basically shoulder tapped uh, to be the candidate for what was sort of theoretically a marginal seat, but one which we had no expectation whatsoever of winning. It was.
was one where the um, then Member of Parliament was featuring uh, on the preferred Prime Minister polls. He was someone who um, was a critic uh, of Muldoon, the then New Zealand Prime Minister, from within his own party, uh, you know, very high profile and, and you know, it was put to me that this was quite a good way to have a practice run because it was likely in a decade or so uh, I'd be I'd be ready to actually become a member of Parliament. Well, you know, as as happens in politics on occasions, the tide came in for the Labour Party. Uh, I was swept in on that tide and won the seat, uh, won it in the next election, and went out when the tide went out on that Labour government. So, uh, you know, that was my that was my introduction to politics. Three years later, I was back home, you know, where I'd lived when I was a kid, uh, and the seat became vacant, and um, I um, have been a member of Parliament ever since. And um, as I mentioned earlier, you've uh, held the portfolios of various different cabinet uh, ministries. Uh, I imagine uh, the portfolio over the Rugby World Cup in 2011 would have been one of your favourites? It, it, it was, although um, one of the problems was that uh, by the time 2011 came, I was no longer the minister. Um, so I was I was the minister for the Rugby World Cup at the point we were doing the bidding process um, and, and a lot of the lobbying uh, was going on. Um, but um, but not the minister, uh, not the minister at the time. That didn't stop me having a very very enjoyable uh, rugby world cup. I'm a big a big rugby fan, and the uh, uh, and and made a lot of um, international friends uh, through that bidding that bidding process and yeah. and uh, uh, and during the cup itself. So, is there a particular highlight of your career that uh, you're most proud of, or would like to regale us with? Um, I, I think for me, the changes I made in as Minister of Education and Early Childhood Education were uh, the most profound, the most important, the things that you know that really pull up my uh, my heartstrings. We effectively professionalised uh, early childhood education when I was there, taking it from a sort of almost like a baby minding service. Uh, through to early childhood education, and that involved uh, the imposition of um, of ratios. Um, I'm still not sure that I, you know, at the moment we have a sort of like a one to five ratio for uh, under two year olds. I'm not sure that I'd be like like to look after five under two year olds all at the same time. But you know, pre- previously it was ten or fifteen, and got those ratios right. We required people to be trained and qualified, and we paid them properly. So um, you know those were those were, I mean there are a lot of other things around you know physical uh, facilities and, and and areas and equipment and things like that. But the but the the ratios of professionalisation and the payment, I, I think was important. And I think out of that we've had a had a massive lift in the quality of early childhood education. And you know you you, you know you know you don't have to be an expert to know. Uh, that if you can get kids off to the right start before they're five, um, you know, there's a, just an enormous amount, both of their brain and physical development, that occurs uh, during that time. If you can get that right, you can make a difference for all of their lives. And, um, you know, I, I think that's that's happening in New Zealand. Um, we have, you know, getting a, a, a much higher proportion of children in early childhood education than used to be, uh, and, and the quality is much better. And so that's something that you know, if you're saying, you know, you know what do I take pride in? That's that's probably number one. 
Yeah. And um, looking towards the future, you, you touched upon um, the, the issues around COVID, but uh, what would you like to, what are your aspirations for the New Zealand Parliament in terms of your, your role as Speaker? Are there any things in particular you're really looking forward to? Like, um, I, I know there's the travel bubble with Australia that's due to start uh, uh, next week. So uh, how is that going to impact uh, life in Parliament? Uh, well, it will open up the possibility of having some people-to-people contact uh, physically that wasn't there previously you know, with, with Australian parliamentarians visiting and New Zealand parliamentarians going there. Possibly more important will be a couple of the Pacific Island bubbles when they, uh, when they occur because uh, those countries have been suffering a lot and, and I think New Zealand parliamentarians getting our heads around that. I've, I've been spending quite a bit of time on Zoom uh, with Pacific Island speakers during the um, uh, you know, the COVID crisis and there's no doubt that they are suffering much worse than we are heavily tourist-dependent um, um, uh, countries uh, that, are, that are suffering um, sort of uh, really badly. But going forward for me, um, I'd like to see a continuation of a lot of changes occurring uh, here uh, in New Zealand uh, as to making our parliament more and more representative. Um, now, not that long, you know, sort of uh, six years before I became an MP, there were only four women out of 99 uh, in the in the New Zealand parliament. Now, the, um, the Labour Party, the, you know, the, the, party of, the party of government, uh, now has more women than men uh, uh, in it. And um, we have a lot more people of colour, Barry uh, and Pacifica, within the governing party are actually overrepresented proportionately uh, compared to the uh, compared to the population. Uh, when I was first a member, uh, we didn't have any uh, gay or lesbian MPs around, and and you know now that you know, there's a there's a there's a big group, there's a big caucus now, and that's something which is which is positive. So I think what I'm saying is that New Zealand Parliament is beginning to look a bit more like our community does. Uh, and what I want our parliament to do is to keep on being, keep on doing that, both for members of parliament and people who work here, uh, so that we can uh, be an attractive place to, you know, to, to be representatives uh, or, to be, or to be workers. And, and that job, that's a job which I think you know, almost never finishes. It's always, you know, there's always an agenda there uh, to make a workplace better. Yeah, and, and and speaking of making Parliament look more like uh, the general public, I read recently that you've uh, uh, enacted an order to allow members of Parliament not to have to wear a necktie, for example. Yeah, yes, that was quite controversial. We surveyed members of Parliament, and members of Parliament decided they want to have neckties. Um, we then had um, one uh, member for the Maori Party in particular who um, who attempted to redefine neckties. Uh, to include a, a string with a treasure on the end of it. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of controversy about that. We had a meeting about it, from which I took some advice, and we decided we'd make it up to members to decide um, what they decided was um, business attire. Our rules say business attire. Now, that you know, business attire has clearly changed enormously from when I was first a member of parliament. And, in fact, when I was first a member of parliament, um, they had they didn't use that expression. It was uh, because the dress requirements were all for men. There weren't any rules for women uh, because the rule, because of the standing orders hadn't contemplated uh, at the at the time they developed women being members. Um, and that's you know that you know clearly uh, since eighteen ninety three. 
Uh, we've had women voting, and since the uh, the early 20th century, we've had uh, women um, able to run and then running and becoming members in increasing numbers. But it, it was not until the um, 1990s uh, that we developed a dress code for women, and, and business attire was what used. But even since the 1990s, my view is that business attire has changed um, you know, increasingly casual, and, and uh, my view is it's really up to members to make decisions for themselves as to how they how they dress. I tend to, well, I always, when I'm in the chamber, wear a collar and tie, and I'm sort of coming and going doing formal occasions, I do that. Uh, but most of the time around the buildings, I'm in, uh, in, in my jeans and an open collar. And I think it's fair to say as an independent observer that uh, the New Zealand Parliament is seen as one of the most progressive in the world in, in that respect. So uh, I, I applaud you for that. Um, so, look, I, I know your time is uh, precious to you. So I just wanted to ask you one last question, uh, and that is uh, for any listeners uh, that might be thinking about joining uh, into the world of politics, either joining a political party or a pressure group or a campaign, et cetera, what, what tips would you give them on, on how to do that? I think the first thing would be to do a bit of due diligence, you know, find out a bit about the particular group that you're thinking about joining, uh, talk to people, especially people you know who are members of that group and, and, and sort of find out from them what it's all about. Uh, the next bit would be to give it a try, you know, but maybe put a time limit on it for yourself, you know, say, okay, well, I'm going to join this group and in six months' time I'm going to decide whether it was a good idea. And for that, it's a waste of time put out because I think too many people get sort of sucked into things which take up a lot of their time and they, you know, they're not always satisfied with. So I think I think that's I think that's uh, worth doing. If people are interested, if young people are interested in doing a um, you know, becoming a politician, uh, my advice would be to do something else as well. Make sure, you know, the, the good thing about our current parliament is now we have a, a wide variety of experience, work experience that people have had, uh, community experience that people have had, family experience that people have had, and, and that makes them richer people and makes us a better house of representatives. I think um, we do need to make sure that there's a, you know, there's a, a breadth of experience um, uh, within our parliament and that people want to be want to be MPs. Um, you know, just don't make the political party your whole life. One thing that's commonly come up in conversations with people is uh, the problem and the challenge, how to get younger generations involved in politics. What is the New Zealand Parliament doing in that respect? Sure. And, and we're, we're trying to do um, a bit of that. Um, we're doing what we're sort of calling uh, internal speakers tours or engagement visits um, out of here every month or so, going to remote or low-income areas uh, around New Zealand with a group of three or four MPs, and we run mock parliaments. We can generally do it in, in two schools um, in a day. We do one in the morning, one in the afternoon, often have a uh, have a barbecue at a local polytechnic or something like that over the lunchtime and just sort of promote a bit of practising, a bit of engagement, getting people to think about the way that parliaments work. Um, and, um, and what we're finding is increasingly coming out of that are uh, petitions and submissions from the groups that we've been to see. You know, they they do have a look at what's going on in the Parliament. There's just about always something that they've got a view on. Uh, and if it's not happening at the Parliament and they think it should be happening, 
Um, often they like doing petitions, you know, even if they only get a dozen of their mates' signatures and they put it in and then they go to a committee and have their say about their petition. And it, it, early involvement, I think, is something which is good. But there's an obligation on us as parliamentarians to take them seriously and to, and to deal with them. And uh, that's part of that's a big part of the test, something that we haven't always been good at doing. Okay, well, look, thank you very much for your time today. It's been very much appreciated. Uh, wish you all the best for your, uh, both roles as the MP and as Speaker of the House. And uh, let's hope that, uh, indeed, the, the, these travel bubbles continue to uh, expand uh, so that we can have a little bit more visitation to uh, different places. Good to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you very Bye-bye. much. That was the Right Honourable Trevor Mallard MP. Speaker of the House of Representatives in New Zealand, or the New Zealand Parliament. If you would like to know more about the New Zealand Parliament, the role of the Speaker, or indeed the Parliamentary Service, you can do so by looking at their website, which is found at www.parliament.nz. Alternatively, if you'd like to know more about uh, Trevor and his role, uh, he's very active on social media and can be found on Facebook with the handle at R-T-H-O-N Trevor Mallard, Right Honourable Trevor Mallard, on Instagram at Speaker Trevor Mallard, and Twitter at Speaker Trevor. The New Zealand Parliament is also active on Twitter, and they can be followed at NZ Parliament. As always, if you're enjoying this series, please consider subscribing via whichever media platform you're listening to. You can also find us on our website, which is at www podcastsfromthemoon.com and we're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter with the handle at podcastsfromthemoon. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Politics from the Moon. Until next time, I've been Ross Evans. Good night and good luck. <laughs>